If I were to ask you to think of times in history you would like to travel back to for a visit, I'm guessing we would bump into each other at certain points, maybe Lazarus's tomb or the parting of the Red Sea, maybe the Gettysburg Address, something like that. I can't imagine many of us would choose to send ourselves back to the days of Noah, a time of violence and corruption and depravity and danger. It's true, maybe we would enjoy seeing part of the building of the ark, but we'd run the risk of being killed while we were watching. It'd be a little bit scary, I think. But consider this, we may not want to travel back to that evil time, but Jesus has assured us that those days of Noah are coming again just before his second return to earth. Are we in those days now? What made them different than the -the run-of-the-mill sinfulness that has defined humanity since the fall of man? Is there any hope for Christian ministry if we know that things are going to go from bad to worse uh, as the end of all things approaches, should we just throw up our hands and say, all right, well, we'll just kind of hide ourselves away and wait for the end to come? Here at Calvary Hanford, we have spent a lot of focused time on the days of Noah over the years. We have a whole series about it on the website, in fact, that you can go through. We think it's important and significant especially given the Lord's discussion of the days of Noah in his Olivet Discourse. But this topic, particularly the first part of chapter 6 of Genesis, is pretty controversial in the Christian community, and some of it is admittedly hard for us to wrap our minds around. But when we come across difficult passages in the Bible, of which there are plenty, when we come across them, we remind ourselves that God delivered us his word for a reason. And that reason was so that we could be made complete and equipped for the Christian life. And and so we remind ourselves that God's word is trustworthy and it's meant to be understood by you, the reader. It's presented clearly and plainly for our benefit. And it's a pretty thick book. If you have a regular analog Bible in your lap right now, you see it's a pretty hefty book. It's not just a short little 40 page, you know, novella or something like that. And the Bible comments on itself, it elaborates on itself, it explains parts of itself. And so we can be sure that what we need to know, God has given us enough information so that we might know it. When we left off in our studies, the genealogy of Seth had come to a sudden halt with this man Noah, one of Seth's descendants. And now the story is going to zoom in on the world of Noah, showing what had become of God's once perfect creation. Verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any as they chose as wives for themselves. And so the immediate question is, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of mankind? There are three major perspectives out there that you're going to encounter when you're looking at the interpretation of this passage. The first is that the sons of God were simply males born to the line of Seth, that this was the godly line, and so they're being called sons of God in comparison to the line of Cain, which was uh, in rebellion against God and had rejected God and his truth. Therefore, the daughters of men become Uh, are the females of the line of Cain. And this argument says that the good boys from Seth eventually started marrying the bad girls from Cain, and their godliness became corrupted. Now, this perspective came about sometime in the third century AD, maybe the fifth century AD. Augustine grabbed onto it, and then it kind of came the standard interpretation 
after that time. The problems with this view are these. It, number one, does not really harmonize with what Peter and Jude say in their letters in reference to this period of time. It also doesn't really work out linguistically. Hebrew scholars will say, hey, we, we've got some problems with that view when you look at the grammar and language and things that are far above my pay grade. It also doesn't explain why the offspring of these particular unions are going to be described the way they are in verse four. And it doesn't account for the fact that in verse 12, we will be told that everyone was corrupt on the earth in God's eyes, everybody. It wasn't that there was one really good group of people, the line of Seth and everybody else was corrupt. It says, man, all flesh everywhere on the entire earth has been corrupted in God's eyes, everyone except one man and his family, just eight people. Now, the second view is that the sons of God are meant to be understood as nobles, aristocrats, kings who would rule in different places and that they started marrying peasants. They were the sons of God, very important, very aristocratic, very powerful. And they went down to the little disgusting plebe peasant people and grabbed some wives for themselves and that they kind of created harems out of them. But this still doesn't explain the offspring issue. And it almost gives us the impression that God was upset that humans weren't keeping to some kind of weird caste system. Oh, aristocrats can't marry peasant people. And so God's upset about that. And that it also kind of implies that in response, God was gonna judge the innocent along with the wicked. I mean, as we read this, we see that some group of guys was kind of taking some group of ladies, whether they wanted to or not, and God is going to respond in wrath and judgment. And so if we take this view that were well, just nice peasant girls and they were being uh, taken into harems by these powerful rulers, does it make sense that God would judge the innocent with the wicked? It doesn't, not based off of what we know about God from the rest of scripture. Now, the third view is the strangest, but it is the one that has been accepted since antiquity. Long before the time of Jesus, this was the accepted view. More importantly, we don't just build doctrines or opinions based off of, well, they believed this the longest. You get into some trouble if you do that. But more importantly, this third view harmonizes with what we read about this period of time and about this situation in both Testaments, old and new. And this view states that the sons of God were fallen supernatural beings who came to earth and procreated with human women, defiling the population of earth and proliferating great evil all over the planet through their offspring. It's weird, but this is the it is not only the view that has been held the longest by the widest group of people, including the, uh, the, the interpreters of what we call the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was almost undoubtedly the, the copy of the scriptures that Jesus and Paul were reading from and would sometimes quote from from the New Testament. But this harmonizes with what we read about giants and about the time of Noah in the rest of the Bible. So why do we think this? So first of all, it is the plainest reading. If you just came to this text for the first time, having never heard an opinion from anyone, you would come to the conclusion that the sons of God, some sort of divine group was interacting with some sort of human group and the result was a problem, a very sinful problem. And so it's the plainest reading. Second, in their letters, as I've mentioned, Jude and Peter refer to angels during Noah's time who left their proper domain and fell into perverse sexual sin. 
And it's also important to note that in the Old Testament, the term sons of God only refers to angelic beings. It's never used in reference to a human being anywhere in the entire Old Testament. And it is used elsewhere, specifically in the book of Job. It uses the exact same term, not just in, in English, this exact same term in Hebrew. And it's clearly only referring to angelic beings. So that's an issue. That's a, a, something that we need to bring together as we try to interpret this text. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute. No, I'm called a son of God. You're called a son of God. Doesn't the New Testament talk about humans being sons of God? Yes, it does. But th the only time that happens is when believers are made into sons of God through a divine act of new creation, which we call the new birth. And so you become a new creation, a new thing created by God. And so it's important to think through some of this stuff. Now, critics recoil at the suggestion that angels could ever mate with humans. They argue, wait, 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 wait. Jesus said, angels don't marry. And he says, when you go to heaven, you, you are gonna be like the angels, not marrying or giving in marriage. Therefore, it's impossible for the sons of God to have been angelic beings. It's true, Jesus said that, of course. They don't marry in heaven, they don't. Uh, but nowhere does it say that angels could never perform these activities. We just don't know a whole lot about angels, not to mention um, what is referred to as the watchers or the divine council or what we talk about the Elohim here at Calvary quite a bit. We do see angels doing human things in the Old Testament. For example, angels are going to eat food, eat a meal with Abraham later in this book. And so on some level that we can't understand, angels have some sort of digestive system. They were able to put food in their mouths, chew it up, and then it went away. I don't know what happened to it, but that happened. In the resurrection, Jesus, after the resurrection, Jesus ate food, right? He had breakfast. He cooked breakfast for his disciples. He ate with them. He ate with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And so there are certain things that we equate with natural human experience that angels are able to participate in. And so we're not quite able to say, well, it's impossible for humans to or for angels to have ever procreated. Now, some scholars will synthesize the, the noble aristocrat view with the fallen angel view. And, and thereby they say that the fallen angels, they possessed these noble aristocrats and they took these women as, as wives and that's how it was accomplished. However it happened, this is what we are seeing. We are seeing fallen angels procreating with human women one way or another and producing a very specific, very evil offspring. More on them in a minute, but first verse three. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. God is not saying here that he's gonna start limiting man's lifespan to 120. As we've seen all the, you know, these patriarchs in the Adam time and the Seth time and the kid, they're living 800 years, 900 years, 969 years from Methuselah. And so he's not saying, well, I'm gonna limit their lifespan to 120 years after the flood. We know this because Noah would live 950 years. And then by the time you get to Psalm 90, it says that the lifespan of a human being is 70 and at best 80. And so what's it talking about here? No, God is saying that judgment must come because the world is so wicked and so evil and so perverse. It has to be wiped clean because God is a holy God and he must respond to sin. But 
He is also a God of great love and compassion and grace. And so even though judgment must come, he says, I will still wait 120 years before I send the flood to destroy the world. God assesses mankind here and he says, they are corrupt. Your version may say they are flesh. They had fully turned away from any sort of spiritual communion with God and had embraced the sinful fleshiness of humanity. Thanks to Adam and Eve and their sin, this was now the natural inclination of the human heart, and it still is today. Our natural inclination is to be at war with God, to be in rebellion against God. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the inclination of our hearts, every human heart, is toward our desires and toward our drives and toward ourselves. That doesn't mean that every single person who's ever been bored is as bad as they could be. We have those figures in our mind from history of the worst people in the world, right? Usually the top five are all common, and then you drop below that, and then it depends on your political party, and then you drop below that, and it depends on if you're a fan of the New England Patriots or not, right? And so, but it's not that every person who is ever born is as bad as they could be. And it's not that, People who aren't believers or who aren't born again never do anything altruistic or anything good or anything charitable. Of course, that's not true. But the natural inclination of our heart is to wander away from a moral truth and wander away from God's way and wander away from God's moral law, which has been written on our hearts, and to try to do it ourselves, to try to prove ourselves worthy, prove ourselves great, prove ourselves you know, independent of any need for a savior. And that's because of what Adam and Eve did. What did they do? We looked at it many weeks ago. They said, the, the Satan, Satan came to them as a serpent and said, has God said? And they said, yeah, God said some things, but I don't think we need to get wisdom and knowledge and instruction from him. We're gonna go our own way. And now we see that this had come to full fruit on this earth during the days of Noah. Uh, they, God looked down and he says, man, there's, there's no spirituality, no true spirituality, no true communion between me and these people. They are all flesh. They are completely corrupt. As unbelievers, our minds are set on the things of the flesh, our desires and our drives. The problem is that mentality only leads to slavery and death. This is a message that oftentimes unbelievers don't believe at first or, or think, yeah, you, you Christians, you're crazy. I'm not headed towards death. I'm living the American dream. Or I'm, I'm a good person. And the Bible comes along and says, hey, I'm gonna explain to you because of God's inspiration who you really are and where you're really headed. And the way that your human heart is leading you to, it is leading you to one place and one place only, and that is the grave. And there is no way out of that but for rescue from God. During the days of Noah, the people would not believe, but God still waited 120 years, sending them preachers like Noah and Enoch that we saw last time, offering them a genuine chance of escape because he has always been and continues to be a God of compassion and mercy. As we're studying on Sunday mornings in the book of the Revelation, we call it the grace of wrath that we're going to get to this point again where God must pour out his wrath on sin because he is holy and he is righteous and he is just. 
And even as he's pouring out his wrath, no one on earth, none of us deserve any mercy. None of us deserve any grace. None of us deserve a second chance. But even in the midst of the great tribulation, God is saying, would you please, would you please get saved? Would you please allow me to take your sin away and to forgive you and cleanse you and give you everlasting life? That's always who God is. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Now, when we're talking about biblical giants and these Nephilim, it can get a little bit confusing as we read the Old Testament because the Old Testament talks about the Nephilim and the Rephaim and the Anakim and my favorite, the Zamzumim. I feel like the Zamzumim don't get their, their day. Zamzumim. So hopefully this will help us clarify this a little bit. The Nephilim, that term Nephilim, is a term God uses, starting here, to describe these hybrid offspring, part supernatural, part human. The term, we're told, means fallen ones. The other names listed above, Zamzumim, Rephaim, Anakim, Elim is another one that's used in the Old Testament. They are either names used by other people, like Canaanite said, oh, those are the Elam, those are the Zamzumim, or they are proper names given to specific descendants of the Nephilim. For example, the descendants of a particular Nephilim named Anak, King Anak, became the Anakim, right? So all Anakim are Nephilim, but not all Nephilim are Anakim, right? There were these different individual people that are talked about and then their descendants. And so we run into these guys, and they're presented always as giants in the Bible. We run into them in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and 1 and 2 Samuel. The Nephilim are shown in the Bible to be giants, not just tall, but of great strength, great ferocity, and, and they're warriors, and they're bad, bad dudes. Sometimes they have deformities. They talk about having six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. Sometimes they're about 10 feet tall. Sometimes they're upwards of maybe 13 feet tall based off of the information that the Bible gives us. Now, listen, I think that for most of us, it's easy to believe that Goliath existed. I don't really have a hard time thinking, yeah, Goliath existed. But the reason is because we've seen tall people before, right? We, we watch the NBA and like, you know what's, you know what's great about, about even baseball, it's the same thing. If you watch till after the game and then they're interviewed, you've got the little, the, the, the little sportscaster person looks like a tiny little person next to this, <laughs> this enormous you know, professional basketball player. And so we've seen tall people. And so on some level, it's not hard for us to believe that Goliath existed. It's harder to accept the idea that something existed which we would elsewhere call demigods, right? That's what we're talking about, right? A part man, part supernatural being, isn't that mythology? The Bible is history, isn't it? We talk about the Bible being true and literal and historical. And so how could this kind of mythological idea be supported? Are you telling me that Hercules really existed? Well, not Hercules himself, but before writing this idea off, let's ask ourselves a few questions. First, it is true that human mythology contains lots of ideas of demigods, but where did that idea come from? You know, when we get to the flood, we're gonna see how so many historic global cultures have a flood story. 
Now that flood story has been changed and shifted and adjusted and mythologized a lot. And we, knowing and trusting the Bible, we say, well, we know what really happened. We know the real story. And then as people spread out over the earth and took the story for themselves and told it and retold it and did the telephone game, it got changed, it got adjusted, it got perverted. And so we look at this and we say, okay, it's true that demigods are a mythological idea, but where did that idea come from? This concept of divine beings cohabiting with humans to create Titan offspring can be found most famously, of course, in Greek culture. That's where we recognize them, but they are hardly the only ones. This idea, this story is also found in places and cultures like Egypt, Sumer, Persia, India, Mesopotamia, the Incas, the Mayans, the Assyrians, the islands of the South Seas, among the American Indians in South America, the Zulus, Sudan, Senegal, Philippines, the Romans, in Norse mythology. All of these cultures and more have this idea of the gods or divine beings coming down, procreating with humans and creating titanic offspring. As Bruce Waltke writes, instead of the Bible representing myth as history as is commonly alleged, perhaps the ancients turned history into myth. And that's exactly what we think they did. Another question we might ask is this, doesn't this make complete sense as a satanic strategy? What had God promised so far in human history up to this point? Cain had been influenced by the devil because the promise was that a seed would come from Eve to deliver mankind from sin, but also to crush and destroy the serpent. And then we're told in the New Testament that Cain was of the evil one. His, his ways were evil and wicked. And what does the devil influence Cain to do? Kill his brother. Who was his brother? His brother was the one that Eve thought was her promised seed. Of course, he wasn't. She was wrong about that. She'd have to wait several thousand years before Jesus showed up. But we see that the devil said, well, let's try to kill the seed. I've already got this guy, we'll kill the other guy and that'll take care of things. But then that wasn't the seed. And God gave Eve more sons, gave her Seth and, the, and other sons and daughters and then Seth had kids as well. And so wouldn't it make sense? Satan couldn't kill them all. Why not switch tactics? Why not completely pollute the population of earth thereby making it impossible for the seed to arrive? We know that Satan loves to plant tares among the wheat. And the devil has gone to great lengths again and again to stop God's plan. He always fails, but he always tries. Sometimes he tries by killing. Sometimes he tries by sending in pollution. Think of the, uh, think of the false teachers that would creep in to the church at the beginning. Sometimes he tries to just keep people away. When God said to his chosen people, Israel, you guys are going into the promised land. What happened? You guys know. They go in to scout it out and they say, oh, we can't go in there because who's in there? Giants are in there. The devil had, con had, had concentrated all of the giants into Canaan and it did keep the, God's people out for 40 years until finally they were brought in by Joshua and overcame the giants. Chuck Missler brings up an interesting thought just fun to think about. As most of you know, there are quite a few monuments around the world that cause archaeologists to scratch their heads. How did ancient societies without machinery set up things like Stonehenge and Easter Island? Is it possible that incredibly powerful giants had a hand in it? Sites like the Gilgal Rephaim. There it is. 
I had never heard of the Gilgal Rephaim until this week, and I was pretty interested in it. It's an ancient megalithic monument found in the Golan Heights of Israel. Today, they call it the Wheel of the Giants. It's a series of huge circles of tens of thousands of rocks weighing in at more than 40,000 tons. Some of the stones weigh five and a half tons on their own. Now, the plot thickens when you discover that what we call the Golan Heights today was once known as Bashan. And Bashan was the place where Og, king of Bashan, ruled. Og, we are told, is the last of the Rephaim. He was a particular line of the Nephilim. He's the guy who has this 13-foot-long bed that the book of Numbers tells us about. Wouldn't it also be just like the devil to influence human cultures to take these horrible monstrosities and turn them into heroes and say, hey, human beings, why don't you celebrate these horrifying monstrosities of evil? to call good evil, call evil good. Instead of acknowledging just how wrong this was, human societies started to venerate Hercules and Achilles and Maui and Wonder Woman, right? That's what we're talking about. One very significant phrase there in verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. And so while we scratch our heads and wonder why, it seems that after the flood, God permitted the fallen angels to once again introduce the Nephilim into our world. That's why we see them in Canaan. That's why we see Goliath and fighting against David. But they were much more limited in their scope and they were ultimately overcome by God's servants like Caleb and Joshua and David with his mighty men. Verse five, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. The Bible's very clear. God is immutable. He does not change. So what are we to make of a passage like this? Well, you see, God is describing the pain that he felt because of the sin of man. God has emotion. He's not just a supercomputer up in heaven. He's an emotional being. That's why you have emotions, because we're made in the image of God. The term grieved here is likened to the deep breathing in in response to acute pain. God can feel emotional pain. When we regret things, it's usually because we've made a mistake. We regret that haircut, or we regret that thing we said, or we regret that email we sent send on, right? You guys need to get one of those email apps that let you undo email. Do you have that yet? I do, and it's a lifesaver. But, <laughs> but God's regret was not because he had made some sort of mistake. It was because of his love for humanity, which had rejected him. In the garden, Adam and Eve had disobeyed, but as we saw, they then remained in as much communion with God as they could. Not so in the days of Noah. All but eight people had rejected the Lord and his truth. And now God must respond to their sin. As one writer put it, they had spent all the capital of God's mercy, but now it was time to pay the bill. You and I can cause God pain. That is a shocking thing to hear and to realize. But it's true. We see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because of their rejection of him. And we're told that he is the exact expression of God the Father's nature. More directly, Ephesians Ephesians chapter four commands us to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Your words, your actions, the attitude of your heart, these things matter to God. And because he is love, he is able to be hurt by our rebellion, disobedience, not weakened, 
Don't, don't, make, don't, make a, don't make the mistake of thinking that God can be weakened by us in any way. He can't. But his heart can be pained by our disobedience and our rejection of him. God was personally sorrowful over the ruination of sin in all of these lives all over the earth, and he was right to respond to it with wrath. But then verse eight gives us this amazing, all-important sentence, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. The word favor is the same that is translated as grace, and this is the very first use of it in the Bible. This all-important blessing from God, his unmerited favor, grace changes everything. It's important that we realize that Noah did not earn favor with God. Grace is always a free gift to everyone. It's not that Noah was the only guy on the planet who checked all the boxes. It's not that he's the only guy on the planet to keep all the rules. We are told specifically why and how Noah laid hold of grace. We're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we read this, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so we're told the secret plainly three times, by faith, by faith, by faith, not by works, not by merit, not because God owed him a solid, but by faith. Noah believed, and therefore he was justified by God and made righteous by God. And here we learn the unchanged principle that no matter how wicked the days are, no matter how evil those around us are, if we trust God in faith, he will pour out his grace in our lives and in our families, and he will deliver us from evil. That might mean deliverance into eternity in heaven, but God will deliver his people because he is God. Verse 9 through 12 summarize what the first eight verses said. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. We're told Noah was blameless among his contemporaries. On the one hand, we're seeing Noah being described as a man in whom God was accomplishing sanctification. Noah was a sinner, of course. That's going to be made very apparent after the flood. I'm glad God doesn't air out my dirty laundry, but just in case we were thinking, well, Noah was this perfect guy. He did everything right. He didn't do everything right. He was a sinner just like you and I were. And in him, we see God is accomplishing sanctification. He made mistakes like we do, but God was conforming his life into the image of his son, just like he wants to do in your life and mine. He was giving Noah his righteousness, and as Noah walked with God, that process continued and developed. But that phrase there where it says, blameless among his contemporaries, can also be translated, it might be in your version, as perfect in his generations. Not only was he living in such a way that he did not violate God's commands, his own genetic makeup had not been violated by the fallen ones. He was perfect in his generations. No Nephilim in his ancestry. This is very important because the Messiah would come from Noah. Therefore, no one can come along and claim the promised seed had been polluted. As we close, we have to come back to the question from the beginning. We know the days of Noah are going to make a comeback before Jesus' return. So are we in those days now? Dr. Henry Morris gives a good list that summarizes the days of Noah based off of what we read in the scripture. In that time, there was a preoccupation with physical appetites, 
rapid advances in technology, grossly materialistic attitudes, inordinate devotion to pleasure and comfort, no concern for God and belief or conduct, disregard for the sacredness of marriage, rejection of the inspired word of God, a population explosion, widespread violence, corruption throughout society, preoccupation with illicit sexual activity, widespread blasphemy. Sounds a lot like the news today, right? Noah wasn't the one who decided what his days would be like. He just found himself in them. I'm guessing he would have much preferred the era of David or Solomon or Christ himself. But there he was at one of the apexes of earth's evil. The difference between Noah and us is that he had to write it out alone. We have each other. Noah's family was the only believing family on planet earth at the time of the flood. What could be done when the dark is that dark? And if you're looking around at the world today and making the mistake of turning on the news and you, can, and you say, man, what can be done in a world that's this dark, in a world that's this polluted with sin, in a world that is this corrupt, in a world that is this violent, in a world that is this angry at God and, and in rebellion against God, what can we do when the dark is so dark? Besieged by monstrous inhuman adversaries at Helm's Deep, King Theoden nearly gives in to despair and says, so much death, what can man do against such reckless hate? If you're familiar with the books or with the movies, you know the answer was to join the king and ride out in courage. It would not be accomplished without danger or without sacrifice, but as they launched into the fray, there on the hill came the white rider with the dawn and with victory in his hand and a faithful host following after him. If we are in the days of Noah, we can still fulfill the commands of our king. He tells us in the Olivet Discourse, be alert, watch therefore. And when you notice the days of Noah around you, man, pay attention, watch and be alert, recognize the hour in which you live. And then at the same time, we can conduct ourselves like Noah did. First of all, he did live a regular life in the sense that he had a family. He, he lived a life. He didn't just hole up in a cave somewhere. He lived his life. He had a family. He raised his kids in the Lord and, and, and loved his wife in a godly way. But in addition to that, we see that what Noah did, he preached, he prepared, he performed. He preached the gospel, we're told in the New Testament because God would have shown anyone mercy who believed. Anyone other than Noah and his family could have gotten on the ark if they were willing to believe, but they would not. He prepared, not just the ark, but he prepared his family. He raised them in truth. He raised them to honor God. He prepared himself to do the right thing, the godly thing, even when it was incredibly difficult. And he performed his calling. God asked him to do a very specific task, a difficult one but we see that Noah performed it faithfully and excellently with God's help and direction and provision. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, blessed is that servant who, whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. What's your calling? What's your job? What has God called you to do? Maybe we're not quite to the days of Noah, though it seems like we are. Even still, we don't know when the master will come for us individually. So let's watch, let's preach, let's prepare and perform our callings knowing the king is with us and the dawn is coming. 